Map everything. I could never be sure if what I was experiencing was authentic or something Anton had devised. While I was real and felt sufficiently detached from the writer, we might argue that everything about me had been imagined. The idea was a paralyzing one. It meant everything I remembered had been made up in Anton's brain. The only way I could deal with this was by telling myself that all facts are remembered by someone or other and that memory is the foremost inventor of life. But this was going in circles. I couldn't accept the predicament I was in. If my frustration is what he wanted, he was getting it. He'd created me without any means of communicating with him. Even if we could have spoken, I doubt he would have listened. He was too busy trying to find out how his book ended. By going back to the cave where his future reader was, it seemed obvious that he would soon yield more totally to the unseen. While everything I did appeared to have been conceived in the freefall of his imagination, I still felt compelled to do something about it. If I was to have any measure of independence, whatever I did would have to be incredibly daring. Although Anton was hell-bent on getting himself back to the cave, he didn't know how to control his whereabouts in the unseen. Being in that hiddenness meant being in a place where everything was possible, yet you couldn't let yourself want to be there. Rather than a reality fixed by what is known, the unseen was a distillation of everything that is knowable. Or, more poetically, we might say it was the compressions of eternity without any of the constraints of time. As such, it was exceedingly difficult to find anything in particular there, let alone a cave in the mountains. But Anton was determined to find a way. He knew that whatever could be realized in the unseen must be rooted in reality. No matter how bizarre anything he could think of turned out to be, its provenance would have to be strictly historical. It wasn't possible to imagine something that didn't have its origins in the already known. It had taken him weeks to understand this while he struggled to write his book. He could barely concentrate. His introduction to the unseen had shaken him so much he was swallowing regular overdoses of the pills his doctor had prescribed. It was the speed with which he was able to access his fantasies of reality that was so unnerving. As I've mentioned, the only way to fix the unseen so that it might be navigated as if a longer while had elapsed was to resist being at all self-conscious. The most delicate pinch of self-awareness would collapse what was being imagined before it could be fully formed. As Anton got more proficient at forgetting who he was and his relationship with the hidden order of things improved, it became more difficult for him to distinguish what was happening in his daily life from what was happening in his daydreams. He found a novel way of managing this. It would eventually lead him straight to the cave. If at any point he felt unsure of where he was, he used self-consciousness as a litmus test. He did exactly this in the university library the day before he disappeared. He went there directly from the café during the morning of the 17th of February, 
Because he felt so awkward at having to lie to the librarian, he knew at once that he was perfectly grounded in reality, rather than any imagined expression of it. The library had a fine collection of maps and charts from different periods in history. The lie Anton told the librarian was that he was writing a paper on colonialism in the 18th century through the production of ever more accurate maps. In reality, what he hoped was that by means of another immersion triggered by the right map, he might locate the cave. The right map was to be a map of Mexico. It may seem arbitrary, but when I say that there were details about Anton's life which drew him frequently to particular memories, you will understand how his memories might draw him to a particular map. I could tell you all about the memory that did this. It was the most solemn moment he'd ever experienced, and it happened in 2009 in the province of Yucatan. He and his wife, Oksana, found themselves standing on the steps of a Mayan temple. They'd taken hold of each other's hands. Nothing was said. In that pause of just a few minutes, they rediscovered what they were together, but in ways they couldn't have anticipated in the magic of that moment. It was always with a sense of nostalgia that they looked back on their travels in the tropics, and particularly at what had been left unsaid between them on the steps of that ruin. The most interesting map of Mexico in the university library had been drawn by the French cartographer Rigobert Bon. Published in Paris in the 1780s, it was entitled Le Nouveau Mexique. In the Gulf, at an anvil-shaped peninsula, Monsieur Bon had found a place called Cap Desconocida. I will translate this into English as Cape Unknown, and into German as Cap Unbekannt. It was situated in a remote corner on the north Yucatan coast. When Anton began to query it more carefully, he discovered that Cape Unknown didn't feature on any other map in the library. True to its name, it seemed to be a place that nobody had heard of except Rigobert Bonn. As Anton studied Le Nouveau-Mexique, he was reminded of a Lewis Carroll fantasy. He thought of the fantasy deliberately so that he might be nudged into the unseen again. It was a technique he had been developing to make himself less attentive. Lewis Carroll may also have made a study of the phenomenon of being distracted. He'd written about a map scaled to the size of the world so that everybody could see where they lived in the greatest possible detail. But this gargantuan map had to be abandoned when whole populations realized that such an unwieldy document left no room for anyone to do anything but study their own section of it. Anton may have been looking at Le Nouveau Mexique, yet it was apparent to him that he was not confined to any single section of it. He raised himself over the Atlantic and looked eastwards. There, for the first time, he was able to glimpse the greens and blues of the Black Sea. He scanned Georgia's western coastline. It was drawn in the most extraordinary detail. It was as if the rocks off the coast of Georgia had been scattered there by a cartographer of genius. This map was so perfectly drafted that Anton could imagine sitting on one of those rocks. If he wanted, he could imagine having a brilliant idea sitting there. 
As the waves trickled over his toes while he sat, that's when he formed the brilliant idea that his future reader was the only person who would be able to tell him how his book ended. But Le Nouveau Mexique didn't stop at this one hopelessly refracted reflection. By tracing himself over the long sweeps of eastern Greece, Anton was able to fall towards the indigos of the Ionian Sea. Every vessel that had ever sailed in those waters was graphically depicted on the map. From ancient galleys with their oars pumping to the unison of survival, to the shopping mall ships of a faraway future crushing into the ports of the eastern Mediterranean, Anton could look carefully at them all. It was like being a child again, playing in a reconstruction of the world. He remembered scrambling over the rubble of all the buildings that had been destroyed by bombs. The map he was on was just like the desolation of his childhood, where anything might be picked up, examined, and brought back to life. With a casual twist further west, he cast his gaze over Africa. He could raise himself above Tunis before setting off on a tour of Timbuktu and the Saharan bulge beyond. Even the temperatures on this map were perfectly calibrated. It could be searingly hot one moment and icy cold the next. He found himself being buffeted by strong winds, blown in the widest circumferences around the enormous flatness below, which was helpfully overlaid with a grid to guide the curious along. After a while, though, these topographical representations of the planet, as magnificently executed as they were, didn't yield the right cave. Anton had seen all sorts of caves on the map, but not the one he wanted. Looking obsessively around the world had landed him back in the east, in Turkey now, in the city of Selçuk. He was staring at a palm tree. Thousands of red ants were crawling in orderly lines up and down the flaky bark. Even the ants in Selçuk were represented on this map. As he stared, Anton realized that if the cave was unknown, in order to return to it, all he had to do was look somewhere on the map that was equally unknown. As it didn't seem possible to recognize something on Earth that had never before been recognized, he wondered if he might not have more luck looking at the outer reaches of the map instead. With that, his attention was raised to the blackness. Beyond the scope of any standard map or chart that might be perused in the university library, what Anton was seeing now had never before been described in words. He made sure he didn't acknowledge this. He steadfastly refused to even contemplate the sublimated memory of the person he'd left behind in the world, still trying to find out what happens beyond chapter 7 of the book he thought he was writing. When he was many millions of light-years away, outside the conglomerations of any known galaxy, he paused to wonder if the map he was looking at could be as big as the whole universe, or was it always going to be limited by his own knowledge of what is possible? He was beginning to understand that if the universe went on indefinitely, no map of it would be able to catch up with itself. It would go on forever, and so would he. Surging outwards on the last of the stellar winds, beyond billions more galaxies that would never be named or numbered, Anton rushed to the end of it all, a place which mariners of old would have called the edge of things. 
In his mythologically dominated outlook, this place was the void where Atlas had once stooped with the whole of existence on his shoulders. But even Atlas wasn't there anymore. In that near-perfect cape unknown, there really was nothing to observe but the steady glint of the map's grid. Beyond the dimly lit, glowing geometrical grill, which seemed to go on apportioning itself into quadrants forever, all Anton could see was that there was nothing to see. He couldn't have imagined being more disappointed. All that was left was the silence of not being able to come up with the words to describe it. Yet in some feeble sense, his memory was still able to function. New words drifted into the faraway position he was in. After a while, he realized that all was not lost. What had followed him intact to the furthest reaches of a two-dimensional representation of everything that had ever existed was his language. But remembering how to say things only made Anton fearfully homesick. He looked back towards the one minuscule location on the map where all of the words that were possible to think of still gurgled in their own inviting stew. In the sound a pop makes, his focus was returned to the one spot in the whole baffling mightiness of it all which still made any sense. Much to his relief, as soon as he was back in the vicinity of known about things, what Anton saw was all of the designations that we as people comfortably applied to our notions of reality. Focusing even more intently on that part of the map's massive mesh, where the earth spins its webs across the shining sun, he could trace his index finger over the most familiar destinations through geographies that had become detailed to the nearest millimeter. It made Anton want to burst with happiness. He laughed at the thought that he could have left all of this behind. <laughs> it was as he scanned an impressive but little explored mountain range just beyond the Black Sea that he found the entrance to the cave again and knew without a doubt that he had to go in. But it was no good. Just as he was about to step inside, Anton remembered that he was looking at an 18th century map. He checked the time. Gazing at the time seemed the best thing to do. Being old-fashioned, he liked to make use of a pocket watch. Although antique and outmoded, it functioned perfectly. It was set in a golden case. According to the inscription on the inside of the lid, it had once belonged to the Reverend Dr. Henry Lansdell. On opening the lid, Anton saw that it was three minutes past twelve. He saw this over and over again, until his hands began to tremble and his face became flushed. He was aware he'd squandered yet another opportunity to go back into the cave, but there was nothing he could do. By the time he could move his limbs, the minute hand on his pocket watch had slipped all the way to twenty-two past the hour. Although it seemed he'd been away all morning, there was no evidence to suggest that Anton's absence in reality had been longer than a few seconds. Nothing in the library had changed. Still staring at what time it was, he was having to contend with the fact that his strong desire to be inside the cave may forevermore prevent him from going back in. 
It sounded impossible, but it was clear that Anton would never be able to want what he had to have. His timepiece continued to function normally. It was 39 minutes past 12 when he reached for his laptop, but missed. In an effort to steady the shaking, he grabbed his left wrist with his right hand. By this method, he managed to edge the fingers of his left hand onto the side of his computer. He pulled the computer towards him. It required a tremendous effort to compose himself so that he could continue writing about me in Otto in Flames. He glanced around before he began. Nobody seemed in the least interested in his reappearance in the library. He tried to breathe more carefully. He looked at the words glowing on his screen. He'd been busy revising Chapter 4 when he became immersed in the map of Le Nouveau-Mexique. There was no shortage of interesting things to add to that chapter. The writer had just been pitched through the universe, all the way to the edge of every known limit, only to end up on the threshold of a cave he desperately wanted to go into. And what did he do? He pictured ways in which I, too, might be exposed to a similarly bewildering experience. Ostensibly in control of his faculties, Anton had made it his mission to ensnare me into my own perceptions of the unseen. Out of a warped sense of duty to this function of his writing, and despite feeling faint, he renewed his efforts to plot my downfall. In Chapter 4, I was supposed to be facing my first night in Vienna in a hotel room. Anton imagined me falling onto my bed in a luxurious heap, which is what I did. But now Urania's helpful hints made sure I would keep falling until I didn't know where I was anymore. As he thought about this, Anton typed the following words. Otto was somewhere in his mouth, shouting at himself. In the writer's mind, I was shouting a message I couldn't possibly understand. He loved describing my inability to comprehend what was happening to me. I suppose it made him feel better. You might conclude that he enjoyed manipulating my life, or that he was sadistic, but we must remember that Anton was being manipulated too. The ideas he had were not his own, nor were the words he wrote his own, because words, like ideas, have never belonged to anyone. When he started typing again, he didn't know where his typing would take him. That's the point. Anton was being led. A few more sentences with a foothold in the future began to formulate themselves. It felt so far away. It felt All he could so see far was away. things with no meaning. All he could do was see things with no meaning. They were shrouded in black. One of them was only slightly less obscure. It looked like the silhouette of a mountain just before dawn. The mountain took the shape of a howling dog. He looked up. But Anton didn't just look up. It was an upward snap of attention. In doing so, he cricked his neck. The language of gestures made him fling his hand to where the pain was. He squeezed his eyes shut. He drew a slow breath. From the feeling of being super-microscopic in the grand scale of things, the impulse that had come to him was about what it is exactly that can be found on maps. 
this inspiration was still too condensed to unravel in words. It was on the tip of his tongue. In the midst of what was still an unspoken idea that came with a crick neck, Anton tried to articulate the clues he could feel. The idea was tangible. That night, he would write about it in the journal he left behind. The best map of the universe will indicate all of the places that exist. This means that a methodical consideration of a life-sized map of everything must reveal places about which nothing is known. Without knowing how he knew this, Anton's conception in the library was that on the very best maps there would be coordinates for locations like the cave he wanted to find, even if those locations were as yet unheard of. He swung around. He was expecting to see Urania somewhere. He'd been so forcibly struck by this bombshell that he believed she must have whispered it into his ear. He stood and scanned his surroundings. The university library had maintained itself as a peaceful setting for students and others to pursue their careers in. Those who hadn't gone to lunch were reading or texting or listening to something interesting on their headphones. Urania wasn't to be seen. It was 15 seconds after 7 minutes past 1 o'clock on the afternoon of Tuesday the 17th of February 2019. At that moment, I happened to be in a queue at Heathrow Airport about to board my flight. I'd been away from Vienna half my life. My hope was that I would be able to recover what I'd lost there. This may have been wishful thinking, but as far as I was concerned, there was no question of being dragged into Anton's developing model of the unseen. As soon as I'd picked up on the tricks he was using to disrupt my life, I did everything in my power to resist him. But I will come to those tensions in our history soon enough. By a set of gradual moves involving minor adjustments, Anton returned to his seat. He knew he'd just glimpsed another aspect of the seemingly impossible. It was as if his muse had crept up from behind and told him what the answer was. She'd done this, one supposes, because she was the kind of muse who could answer questions before they were asked. He composed himself sufficiently to type the only thought a being the size of a speck could have in this vast and unknowable exposition. What is seen is never more than a microscopic fraction of what is visible. It was a thought he would eventually trick me into having as well. When he read the sentence back to himself, he sighed happily. You will understand that Anton was in a precarious state of health. He was a little too old to be dabbling in the deeply hidden. With mixed success, he'd been practicing the exceptional mindset required to remain in the unseen forever and do it without knowing he was doing it. On those few occasions when he actually did manage to conjure with the conditions needed to remain there, his immersions had all been unsteadied by the sheer shock of it. The unseen could be as unexpected as it was predictable. It was like a coin that once tossed always lands on its opposite side. Cultivating the absence of a desire to be there when that is all he wanted to do was making Anton wretched. 
It was with a sense of mission that he packed his belongings and heaved his coat on. His plan was to go back to Urania's office and make an appointment to see her. What he needed was help. Not the kind of help the muses were used to conferring on mortals. Not just a few scattered but brilliant notions around which a good writer might give an account of something out of this world. What Anton had begun to suspect was that by the mental stimulations he referred to as being immersed, he could pass physically into experiences capable of unlocking everything knowable. In such a volatile place as the unseen, what he needed, in order to continue, was the best map money could buy. Chapter 4 Otto had showered and was almost dry. He told himself that being naked and warm was the height of luxury. But while he was warm, he was not quite naked. He had his phone in his hand. It was switched on and ready to use. He resisted using it. He returned it to the writing desk. He placed it over the calling card the priest had given him. Only when he'd done this was his sense of luxury complete. Before he permitted himself to flop onto the fluffed-up bed, he raised his right hand in a masterfully clipped salute. The gesture was one a stoical passenger might have performed as a parting quip on the deck of a sinking ship. Only then did Otto let himself fall. With the first bounces over the mattress, his limbs stretched of their own accord, rippling outwards from his torso, organizing themselves into a star shape. The feeling of sinking would last no longer than a few minutes, but it was long enough for him to put himself into a state of mind he would come to think of as a bliss abyss. It was close to midnight on Tuesday the 17th of February 2019. Otto had been checked into his room for nearly two hours. Before he sank more deeply into the mattress, he was able to calculate that he was paying 30 euros for each hour he remained in the room. The extreme heat of the shower had raised his body temperature. It may be that he felt lightheaded. He couldn't stop sweating. Although he dried himself thoroughly, the silver sheen over his chest and forehead resisted every effort to wipe it away. His suitcases had been corralled into a corner. They were next to the empty mini-fridge. It seemed that the suitcase with life-in-spot water in it had edged itself closer to the writing desk. Either that, or the writing desk had moved towards the suitcases. Otto suspected it was the manuscript, up to its old tricks, and smiled. His trousers were sprawled on the floor near the desk, like the legs of a dead man. His jacket was draped over the back of the padded chair, aloof and alone in the world. For the first time that day, it struck him as odd that he'd come to Vienna, dressed in a suit. There is a kind of euphoria, raised in exhaustion, which Otto had been used to as a professional. This euphoria was what he was feeling now. Although it was a zone he could still operate in, 
it reduced events to such faraway sizes that life lost its definitions. Even if those definitions might have been glaringly obvious during the course of a standard working day. Added to which, Otto had been traveling for some 15 hours. That day he'd consumed nothing but a fizzy brown drink and a sandwich containing a buttery lettuce leaf and a slice of processed cheese. He hadn't slept well either, probably not since 2016. This was partly due to the demands of his career as a lawyer, but it would also have been the monograph he'd written. Now that it was finished, Otto believed he would never have to write again. He felt that looking at yourself seriously should be done rarely, if ever. To seek any greater exposure to the myriad details of a life would be like playing with fire. Having charted his dismay in writing, from the day he woke up from his coma to the day he abandoned his career, Otto felt ready to move on. He wasn't experienced enough to realize that once the writer has woken up, he can never get back to sleep. It seemed he might continue to fall. Like a ship sliding between the waves, he sank further into his listlessness. It was still a halfway gloom where he was. Yet it was a place where memories were no longer organized by the rules of a waking day. The feeling was of drowning in luxury. Otto no longer wished to know anything about anything. He remained oblivious of the fact that his journey back to Austria had produced the first of a series of shocks so seismic they would collapse his universe more thoroughly than he ever could have imagined. Lying on his back, Submerging star-shaped through his life, he put himself as far away as he could get from the confusions that were troubling him. It was in this condition that he would come face to face with the automaton he thought he was. The automaton needs to be explained. It was an entity constructed out of the manuscript in his suitcase. Largely an idiosyncratic inquiry into being an advocate for those accused of crimes, the reality was that, early on, Otto had lost control of the writing. Not only did the manuscript write him out of a job, it created a whole new species. He was deceiving himself if he thought the thing he'd imagined was safely packed in his luggage. It was a separate creature now. It was living inside him, and it wouldn't go away. One of the many observations in the manuscript was that even if Otto wasn't aware of it, the functions of the automaton were permanent. Every perception he had, every action he took, operated automatically out of the universal exposition of everything, which had at its core a void of unknowing. If the automaton was at the center of Otto's belief system, this void was the place where that system was located. Why the automaton in him had decided that the piece he'd written should be called Life in Spot Water remains unclear, but the writing must have felt like a rush into the unknown he would never be able to escape from. Since completing it, Otto had tried to distance himself from the ideas in his book. Its conclusions made him nervous. He didn't like to think about what he'd thought of in case it was true. The trouble was, the distances he'd managed to establish within himself were too far away from anywhere to be useful. Ultimately, Otto became distant from the professionals he worked with, and even the clients he was trying to represent. 
Most of all, he became distant from himself, to the extent that he was honestly able to deny that he had any such thing as a self. It was the automaton that decided he needed to abandon his career as a lawyer. It told him exactly what to do and how to do it. Once those orders had been followed, all that remained for Otto was to reunite himself with Marie and the children, which after all is what had been foretold. To his amazement, Marie had visited him in England in 2016. She was sitting by his side when he came out of his coma. Their conversations had been strained. Everything important had been left unsaid. Within a few days, she was gone and they were reduced again to the occasional phone call. The following year, Otto's daughter had spent time with him as well. He and Izzy had formed an understanding of sorts, but Otto knew how precarious understandings could be. As for his son, he hadn't seen Jacob since leaving Vienna under a cloud in 2002. Now that his life in England had come to an end, all he could cling to was his conviction that the only beginning left was the reunion he had in mind. On the face of it, Otto appeared to be normal. Despite the instability he'd suffered as a younger man, he'd managed to cultivate the calm and rational components of a normal person approaching 40. There was always going to be an impetuous side. Otto knew this too. Sometimes he could see that side of him, crouching behind the lazy droop of his eyelids. He had a long nose. The way his nose reached towards his mouth had the effect of making him appear trustworthy. The scarring on his head had healed. All that was left of the attack on him now was a small dent on the side of his skull. He kept his hair trim and was clean-shaven. In the meantime, though, since coming out of his coma, Otto's eyes had taken on a new caginess. They were still droopy, but under the lids they darted this way and that. It was as if by doing this his eyes could see more. On the bright side, he was no longer as argumentative as he used to be, or even that selfish. He would have said he wasn't even himself anymore. In his younger days, he would have been thought impulsive, or someone with a romantic spirit. This was encouraged at one time. It was regarded as a virtue, rather than the behavior of a person who requires correction. More recently, Otto's impetuous nature, his recklessness, his rude disregard for qualities such as forbearance or moderation, had been distilled by the changes in his personality, leaving just enough behind for him to put an abrupt end to his career as a lawyer in England in order to make a speculative journey to the city of his birth with no prospect of earning a living there. His automaton looked exactly like him. With two important exceptions, its behavior was perfectly in keeping with the way in which Otto conducted himself. The only differences were that his automaton wasn't conscious and it didn't do anything voluntarily. It looked as if it knew what it was doing. It behaved as if it was excellent company. It dressed smartly and appeared to make rational decisions. In fact, everything Otto's automaton did, it did as a result of his apprehension of the world, including the commonly held apprehension that people are conscious and behave with a degree of self-determination. 
But even these characteristics, in conjunction with his automaton's many attributes, were wholly rooted to the great sprouting tree that is the past. Not just Otto's past, but the billions of years it had taken for the universe to end up with him flopping onto his bed in a hotel room in Vienna and sinking like a ship. As he undulated, he became amused by the phrase Blissabyss. It stretched itself out of his brain. He didn't know how he'd come to think of the phrase, but it felt more than pleasant. It felt precise. It ordered life in a particular way. It presented experience as an exquisitely patterned symmetry, soon to be forgotten. That was the problem exactly. It was as Otto meandered into the recesses of those gorgeous patterns that the parts made of bliss began to fade. When the sheen was gone altogether, all that was left was the abyss. His thoughts seemed to sprout like shoots. He was too far in. It felt so far away he could only see things with no meaning. They were shrouded in black. One of them was only slightly less obscure. It looked like the silhouette of a mountain just before dawn. The mountain took the shape of a howling dog. No doubt it was the very dog destined to attack him when he was least expecting it. He tried to close his eyes, but they were already closed. He'd known since 1999 that when he got back to Vienna, he would be cornered by a dog, and that if he was to survive, he should never look at it. The voice that spoke came as surprisingly as any childhood memory. It spoke in the measured tones of a BBC commentator. The fall occurred literally overnight, but what does that mean? Had he continued to slowly dissolve, Otto might not have been able to answer. In order to cast some light on the abyss, he needed to see himself better. He needed to understand that the limbs of his star-shaped body were distended and unnaturally long. They were like ribbons in water. His eyes had floated out of his head. His mouth was open. Otto was somewhere inside his mouth, shouting at himself. He needed to understand that the weight of a deluge was forcing him down, and the first swirls of the sea had already begun to spiral into his throat. The automaton was staring from above. It must have escaped from its suitcase. It was saying something, but Otto could barely hear what. It was like a gull with yellow eyes, flapping above the waves, looking for something to peck at. For all Otto knew, it could have been saying, the fall occurred literally overnight, but what does that mean? Overnight, but what does that mean? If he smiled again, it was because the question was so damned clever. There is nothing more intelligent than a good question, he thought. He'd always wanted to get to know one personally, but questions could be so prickly and unsociable. Because it seemed to mean nothing, the clever question in Otto's mind may have offered the most fitting end. It made him genuinely believe he was about to drown in his hotel room, for no good reason other than the fact that he was there, which was fine by him. But the automaton hovering overhead was frantic. It had been evolved to avoid every eventuality from mismanagement to mishap, and it knew when to declare an emergency. 
He stirred in his bed. On hearing what sounded like shouts, Otto became aware that he no longer had the use of his limbs, nor did he seem to have a head. He was all torso. No matter how much he tried to make his body shift, nothing would shake from side to side. All he could sense was the quickening of his heart. He longed to heave his overcooled torso up, to cover himself with the duvet, and to become a person in Vienna who had no idea what he was doing there. He shuddered and assumed some mastery over his actions. The horrifying experience of having no control produced symptoms associated with the release of adrenaline. When this happened, his heart pumped with greater urgency, and a profound feeling of rush permitted his brain to run for shelter. Otto was so alarmed by a growing absence of feeling that he found he could widen his eyes. With that, it became possible for his lips to curl. He began to form a fist. As he heaved his right leg out of the mire, he found he was able to lean up on his elbow. It took all the strength of Sisyphus to roll onto his side and pull the duvet over his body, but he managed it. Breathing more naturally now, renewed in the belief that he had control over his movements again, he determined that he should scratch his ear. He did this. Given the paralytic tranquility he'd only just narrowly escaped, each new yet familiar action was something to be celebrated. He fumbled for the remote. He found it on the bedside table. He located the red button and gently applied pressure with his thumb. To be able to do this felt magnificent and powerful. The television on the wall flickered colorfully and resolved into a collage of violent scenes. Two athletic males were entering a lift. One of them had had the good sense to attend to his appearance. His dark hair was sleekly combed. He wore a tailored suit. He appeared relaxed. When he smiled, it was obvious that he was able to afford a good dentist. Otto sensed he was being coerced into identifying with this agreeable-looking hero. As he watched, he tried to hone his critical faculties. The other man in the lift was smirking. He wore a crumpled suit and hadn't shaved. He hadn't brushed his hair. His teeth were stained. As such, Otto's critical faculties failed to engage. The more he watched, the more he disliked the disheveled man. His biased appraisal felt justified when the disheveled man produced a pistol. Luckily, the agreeable-looking man had anticipated this. Before the lift doors opened, he grabbed the pistol, turned it around, and shot the disheveled man in the stomach. Otto watched as this near-perfect example of species domination stepped over the body of his victim, out of the lift, and into an underground cavern. He turned and began walking down a warren of dimly lit passages, cut through the insides of a mountain. Wherever he went, the passages looked the same. Without so much as a crease on his tailored suit or a stain on his white shirt, the agreeable-looking man executed one turn after the other as if he knew exactly where his choices would take him. Otto picked up the remote. He was about to switch off when he heard barking. The dog had red eyes. It was loping along the length of the passage the agreeable-looking man was in. 
It pinned the man against a rocky surface, slurping and barking. Faced with this, Otto couldn't help wondering what the man would do. Although he was still holding the remote, he was riveted to the screen as if he was the one being attacked. In a magnanimous concession to the dog, the agreeable man chose not to kill it. Rather, he slammed the butt of the disheveled man's pistol into the dog's nose. A small band of helmeted and heavily armed soldiers jogged around the corner then. Otto decided that he'd had more than enough. The soldiers were intent on settling their own differences with the hero of the film. Dispatching him should have been easy, but the hero was equal to anyone who got in his way. In a series of choreographed encounters, he dealt with each of the dozen or so soldiers, leaving a trail of twisted bodies and a skulking dog behind. Otto really wanted to turn the television off, but he wasn't able to. He felt incredibly tired. In the end, it was only his fatigue that allowed him to overcome an unhealthy fascination for the exploits of a hero lost in a warren of passages. The television went black. He let the remote drop to the floor. In that darkest moment of the day, all that was left was the ferocity of the film, whining in his mind in a bluish, electrical fizz. As he composed himself for sleep, he pictured himself returning to the writing desk first thing. He imagined picking up the card the priest had foisted on him. He watched himself standing at the desk, unplugging his phone, and staring at Marie's number on the screen. It was as if he had a choice. He could call one or the other. But as he rose towards one of the most welcome slumbers he'd ever known, Otto could hear the alarms of an insurmountable outcome embedded in the choice he had. <laughs>